first uh, part of chapter 5 as well. Uh, and I mentioned this last week, but really our journey uh, in Ephesians is getting more and more practical. We're beginning to see just the practicality of the gospel. The first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, we're reminded of who God is for us in Christ Jesus. And so we're reminded that uh, it's only in Christ alone that we have right standing before God, that we're reconciled with God, that uh, in Christ alone um, has the dividing wall of hostility been torn down between us and God and between us and other people. And now as we've moved in uh, chapter 4 and beyond to the conclusion of uh, the book of Ephesians, we're really seeing the Apostle Paul saying, in light of this reality, in light of who you are in Christ Jesus, this is now how you live in response to that. And so uh, we be, we've seen that for the last couple of weeks, and this morning um, is going to be no different. And so Ephesians chapter 4 starting with verse 30, and I'm going to read down to verse uh, 2 of chapter 5, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll make some observations together. But the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then chapter 5, therefore, okay, because of all of that we've just read and all we've been covering, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again that we can come this morning and open it and, um, and you promise that through it, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will change us. And so God, we pray that together as we look through this passage this morning, that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see in, in humble hearts so that we can repent and so that we can savor Christ Jesus more. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, if you're taking notes, I've, I've kind of labeled the sermon this morning being mindful of our triune God. And, and I think um, that that's an appropriate title because verses 30 on through uh, chapter 5 here, we see kind of this Trinitarian format, if you will, in the way the, uh, the Apostle Paul is commending us to forsake particular sins and, uh, and again, to put on. And we kind of see that theme, especially in the latter uh, chapters here in the book of Ephesians, is this theme of putting off and putting on. And so, um, so we want to walk with a mindfulness of Christ. And right in verse 30, we see right from the get-go that we need to be walking with a mindfulness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Walking with a mindfulness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if you look at verse 30 here backwards for a moment, the second part of verse 30, the Apostle Paul reminds us that it's, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we were sealed for the day of of redemption, sealed for the day of redemption. And, and Paul has already used this type of language earlier in the book of Ephesians. He, he used it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to around 14. He says, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it. 
And so the Holy Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul and the testimony of all the Scripture, really, is that the Holy Spirit, He has sealed us for redemption and is Himself the, the guarantor, if you will, of our inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it, until the day that Christ Jesus returns. He's seated now, He stands, He returns, He makes all things new, and we enter into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. The Holy Spirit is our seal, He's our guarantor that we will, as Christians, persevere, move toward that day together. And the word seal here is used intentionally by Paul, and it's significant for us. Sealing in, in the ancient world, it served... Uh, as a legal signature, if you will, as a legal signature. And it, it was a branding that signified ownership. And, and the branding itself uh, was uh, the guarantor of what was promised, the contents that the seal contained, if you will. Now, th- this, is, this is why the Holy Spirit being our seal is important. If we're in Christ, if we're truly in Christ Jesus, if our hearts have been captivated by the gospel of God, then the Holy Spirit, the seal, the guarantor, he lives inside of us, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of all of God's children. And Paul told the church of Corinth when he he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. And he goes on, he says, you're not your own, right? That's, a, that's the, the therefore of the Holy Spirit living in us. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Right? The Holy Spirit, we see even in the Old Testament, passages like Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, we see this promise that the Holy Spirit will in fact live in the hearts of God's people. And the reason this is important is because it's this tangible reminder, if you will, right in black and white, right in our text this morning, that we're absolutely dependent upon the Lord for everything. We're dependent upon the Lord for everything, and that includes even our perseverance in this faith that we profess, right? The God who saved us is the God by the power of the Holy Spirit who's going to see us home. Isn't that good news, right? The God who authored our salvation is the God that promises to see us home. And and all throughout church history, God's church has confessed that belief, and they've called it a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And that doctrine means that every Christian, every true saint, everyone who's been converted by God through the gospel, right? And and as we saw several weeks back in in Ephesians 2, that salvific work, we saw that that it's a gift. We saw that grace is a gift. We saw that even our faith is a gift, but the, 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 the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that if we are in Christ, we will persevere in that profession. We will persevere in that faith. And just as salvation is a gift from the Lord, so it is that that salvation that, that's been given to us freely, that salvation won't be revoked. It won't be taken away. Right? We, and we can't, that means we can't brag about how awesome we are for being Christians, right? The reason that you're a Christian, the, the, the reason that I'm a Christian, the reason that you have faith, the reason that I have faith is because God's enabled us to have it, right? He's given it to us as a gift. And if our salvation 
is a gift based on God alone, right? Again, Ephesians 2 stuff, then certainly he's the one who has the authority to see that we make it home. And we make it home to the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to study uh, the book of Philippians, another one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the fall. Um, but Paul makes a statement very similar to this in the book of uh, Philippians as well, in his letter to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this. And you guys, if you've been in church life for any length of time, you've heard of this, but I'm sure of this, that he, that God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's encouraging. Right? Our God, who's the author of our salvation, is the same God that will bring it to completion. And as believers this side of eternity that struggle with doubt, that struggle with sufferings, right? that, that struggle with the idea that, that the king really loves us, right? that the God of the cosmos sees us and loves us. And not just struggling with doubt and sufferings, but our struggles with sins, right? Believers who wrestle this side of eternity with all of that stuff have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who's the seal on our souls that in the midst of all that stuff, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of sins, we have the seal, the Holy Spirit living in us that reminds us that we're going home, reminds us that God in Christ really is going to make all things new. Now listen, we're, we're living in a time that's crazy for many people and scary for many people, right? There's violence, right? Politics are, are brutal. COVID-19 isn't going away. People aren't coming out of their homes. They're hunkering down. The suicide rate has increased. Right? Yet as Christians, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who's called the Comforter, the Comforter, and he lives inside of us. It's comforting to know that our outward circumstances don't change the reality that we're in Christ. Our bodies may die, but our souls are secure in Jesus. We serve a God who has, who has authority over our body and our soul. And if, and if we've been saved by God in Christ, we're sealed. We're, we're children of God, and it's solely because of God's kindness and goodness toward us in Jesus. So what if you're not a Christian this morning? If you're just sitting in here, and maybe you've sat in church for a long period of time, for years and years and years, and you've never been converted by the gospel. Or maybe you're visiting this morning, and you've, you don't know the gospel. You don't have that comfort. You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You don't have the promise of enjoying and delighting in God for all eternity, but you can have it. You can have it. You can possess it even right now. The people that, that gather here week in and week out, we do so because by God's grace, we realize a few things. First, we, we realize that, that we're morally bankrupt. Uh, an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah says that even the good works we do are like filthy rags. They're like polluted garments before a holy God. And we may not be as sinful as we can be, but the testimony of the Scripture tells us that we're thoroughly corrupt. We're sinners, and, and we have no ability to change that. 
And, and to make matters worse, we're by nature, and we've looked at this in the book of Ephesians already, but we're by nature enemies of God because of our sin. God's holy, he's without sin, and his wrath burns white hot against unholiness. And we also confess and understand as Christians that we need outside intervention, and God in Christ Jesus has acted. He's acted. And you may not understand this, we don't even fully understand this, but the creator of all things became man. And in his becoming man, he didn't diminish an ounce of his divinity. He's truly God and truly man. And as a man, he walked in obedience, the only man to ever do it. And this made him a perfect object for our sins to be placed on. We needed somebody who, who could shoulder our sins, who could stand in our place without his own sin and say, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the wrath. And he did that. He died this criminal's death. Christ endured the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin. And in this unfair exchange, the Holy Spirit of God, the seal, our comforter, the third person of the Trinity, he gave us Christ's righteousness, his perfection, and he, he did that as a gift. So this morning, if, if this stirs you, if this story, this true story, if it's connecting with you, the Holy Spirit of God may be, may be working in your life, and you can express your trust in Jesus by forsaking your sin, forsaking your idols, and confessing Jesus as your Savior and be sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal. He's our guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And if, if that's you this morning, I would love to hear from you. So as people who, that was as a people who are sealed, right? Sinners who are now saints in Christ Jesus, people who have the Holy Spirit living in them, what does it mean when Paul says, and we go back to the first part of verse 30 here, when Paul says in the first part, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It means that bitterness, right? We've, we've kind of read this already. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice are not good roommates with the Holy Spirit. Right? They're not good roommates with the Holy Spirit. That's what we see Paul connect grieving the Holy Spirit with in verse 31 there. All right, and as Christians, the, apostle, the logic of the Apostle Paul here, he, he's in effect saying, why would we pursue things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God who has sealed us for the day of redemption? Why would we pursue those things? Why would we indulge those things? Why would we entertain those things? And while many of us may struggle with these particular sins as Christians, Christians should not, and what the Apostle Paul is pressing in on us about, Christians should not be devoted to these things. We shouldn't be devoted to these sins, or, or devoted to any sin, for that matter. We're not given over to these sins, because devotion to these sins, a, a wholehearted embracing of these sins, without a violation of conscience, right? Without the, the grieving of the uh, inner Holy Spirit in you, but... Um, um, we're not given over to these sins because it's an impossibility for someone who has the Holy Spirit of God living in them to be wholeheartedly devoted to this list of sins or to any other sins for that matter. And pay attention to the list. And, and keep in mind, this, this letter is addressed to a local church. 
right? Paul wrote this to an actual church called the Church of Ephesus, and he, he talks about putting off bitterness, which is this harshness. It's, this, um, it is, it's harboring this resentful spirit, if you will. He told us to put off wrath, which is, can be translated as, as actually breathing violence is the, the translation of that. Or anger, right? That anger that we may harbor and brood on, which is the, our imagination, and if you will, going wild with things um, of vengeance against some perceived, in, perceived injustice that we've experienced. And to put off clamor, which is this outworking of bitterness and wrath and anger, it literally means screaming at someone. It, there's a, um, it's physical, if you will. And he speaks of putting off slander, which is blasphemia in the Greek. It means it's abusive. It's slow to call something good, good, and slow to identify what's truly bad. It switches right for wrong and wrong for right. And he tells us to put off malice, wickedness, this vicious disposition, if you will. It's this underlining principle of evil. An early church father from the fourth century said of this passage, bitterness begets wrath, wrath, anger, anger, clamor, and clamor, the more chronic evil speaking slander. Malice is the secret root of all fires fed within and not appearing to bystanders from without, which is the most formidable type of wickedness. Malice is an evil vicious disposition that underlines all those things that we sinfully brood on, right? Malice, uh, maliciousness or malice underlines our tearing down of others. It underlies our, our gossiping about people. It underlies our speaking that leads others away from Christ. And again, remember that this is in the context of a local church here. These sins can pollute an entire church community and and destroy spiritual vibrancy and hinder the church's witness. These are are disciplinable sins. These are serious sins, and we're to repent of them quickly. And if those in the context of our local church refuse to repent, we're called by God to confront them. As we look at this list together, if the Holy Spirit's living in us, we look at these words spoken by God himself and we say, yes, we're to put off these wicked sins. And we identify where we're guilty of these things. And rest assured, we're all guilty in some shape, form, or fashion of these sins. And we confess those sins to God and we repent of those sins. So we're, we're to walk with a mindfulness of the Holy Spirit. That's point one. We're also to walk with, with a mindfulness of the Father, right? Walk with a mindfulness of the Holy Spirit. We're to walk with a mindfulness of the Father as well, right? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, address the second part because it's the second part that's the motivator to, uh, toward action for us, right? That, that second bit of the verse that says, as God in Christ forgave you. Are you a sinner this morning? Yes. Yes. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. 
God in Christ has forgiven you. He's forgiven sinners and he's called them saints. That's good news, isn't it? Right? For those of us who say, yes, I'm a sinner, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. And, and meditating on God and Christ forgiving us is good, right? Meditation is, is practical. It's, it's helpful. And, and uh, Paul says in Romans 2.4, another letter he wrote to the, uh, to the Roman church, actually says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness, of God's kindness, right? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? Rightly meditating on the reality that we've been forgiven by our kind God in Christ Jesus, it should produce, if rightly thought upon, right? We're internalizing these important, unchanging truths about God, who God is for us in Christ Jesus. It should motivate us toward action, that action being we should be, as Christians, chief repenters, should be chief repenters. There should be movement, and Paul gets very specific about what thinking deeply on God forgiving us in Christ should do. He gives us a list, right? It couldn't be more straightforward than this list he gives. There's three things that are the opposite of the list that he gives regarding grieving the Holy Spirit. So in effect, he's saying, again, we put away the things we just covered, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, and we put on, again, the, there's that put on, put off um, logic that the Apostle Paul is using, but we put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Right? Those sins were to cast off are the opposite of these things. Right? They're the opposite of these things. And kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness is a result of meditating on God's kindness. It's a result of, of truly internalizing the, the fixed reality that his posture is one of acceptance of you if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. And so to be kind, let's just kind of work through this list. To be kind, it's, it's to be eternally useful for the glory of God and the well-being of others. It's what to, to biblically, um, biblically speaking, to be kind is to be eternally useful for the glory of God and the well-being of others. If you're familiar with St. Augustine or his testimony in a book called uh, Confessions, you know that he was a skeptic of Christianity. Really, he, he thought that, it was, that Christianity was silly and, and superstitious and for the unthinking person, if you will. Um, and then he, he met a guy, a bishop actually named Ambrose, who was a Christian, and he said, he said this about Ambrose. He said, I began to like him at first, indeed not as a teacher of the truth, for I, had no, for, I, for I had absolutely no confidence in your God's church, but as a human being who was, uh, but as a human being who was kind to me. Right? He was attracted to Bishop Ambrose because of the kindness that Ambrose exhibited toward him. God pierced the stony, immoral heart of Augustine initially through the kindness of Ambrose. And that's a lesson for us in how to measure kindness. Right? A couple of just heart-prodding questions. Is your kindness drawing attention to, to God's glory and Christ's salvific work? Is it for the well-being of others, particularly their, their spiritual well-being? Right? We're to put on, according to the Apostle Paul, we're to put on kindness. 
And we're also called to be tender-hearted, which is another uh, way of saying we're to be compassionate. We're to be compassionate. It's actually translated as gut-level sympathy. Paul's saying we should have gut-level sympathy for others. And, and who is perfectly sympathetic toward us? It's Christ. Right? The author of Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Tenderheartedness, it it requires a memory of who you were before Christ, or for that matter, who you were even yesterday. I've I've noticed a habit in my Christian walk, and, and you've probably experienced it too, maybe, and here's the habit I've noticed in my Christian walk. When I hear some Christians say certain things or say that they believe certain things, uh, I, I'm appalled. How could they believe this? How could they say this? I self-righteously think to myself, forgetting how needy I am of the gospel of God, of God's grace, and how prone I am as a, a, a fickle Christian to go astray. And when I learn something new about God, it gets even worse than what I just mentioned. But when I learn something new about God, I have a tendency to communicate in a way that says, I've always believed this. I've got it figured out. It's time for you to get with the program, forgetting that I was instructed in whatever it is that I'm embracing maybe last month. All right, it, it's amazing how patient we can be with ourselves. We can be so patient with ourselves and we can be so impatient with other people that we think are more spiritually immature than us in their thinking and in their behavior. We're so quick to latch on to just this spiritual arrogance that marked the Pharisees. And Paul here, he says, we need to develop Christ-like tenderness, gut-level sympathy for one another. And we can read the Gospels, and we can look to Christ, right, our sympathetic Savior, and see how patient he is toward his disciples. Right? Without, without once compromising the truth, right? Because we tend to think that heralding the truth and being compassionate, we put those at odds with one another when they're not really at odds. It's just our arrogant delivery of that truth that gets in the way. But look at how tenderhearted and patient Jesus is toward his disciples. Look at how even he treated the false disciple and traitor Judas. So we're to put on kindness. We're to put on tenderness, and then we're to be forgiving. And briefly, for time's sake, I just want to, in a 20,000-foot view, I want to give you just a, a quick survey of forgiveness. When, when Scripture speaks of forgiveness as it relates to you forgiving people, there, there are two different types of forgiveness, if you will, that, that you'll find in Scripture. One of it, uh, there's a level one forgiveness, there's a level two forgiveness, and um, Uh, and somebody else coined that, that I can give you the name of if you're interested in studying more. But level one forgiveness is is found in our passage this morning. It's found in another passage like Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you, so you also must forgive. Level one forgiveness is all about your heart posture 
before God. Right? Your heart posture before God has a direct impact on your heart posture toward another person. Right? A Christian, uh, according to the Scripture, can't inwardly hold unforgiveness, which turns into all of those things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God and walk with a clean conscience before God. We have to have a heart posture of forgiveness toward other people based on the magnitude of forgiveness that we have received by God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Level one forgiveness, it's expected and it's commanded in the hearts of all believers. Now, the other type of forgiveness is is a level two forgiveness, and it's found in a passage like Luke 17, verses three and four. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Level two forgiveness is is transactional. So if level one forgiveness is at this heart posture level, level two forgiveness is transactional. It's the offender, the person who has sinned against you, coming and asking you for forgiveness and repenting and you dispersing that forgiveness. And in many cases, this can't happen. Say, if a crime has been committed, it may not be possible. Or if the offender has died, or if you're the offender and the person you've offended has died, or say, has a restraining order against you or something like that. But the bottom line for level two forgiveness is that if the offender has been granted repentance and faith in Christ Jesus and comes to you with a contrite spirit, you're to forgive him transactionally. Level one forgiveness says that even if that never happens, you're to have a heart posture of forgiveness toward that person, whether or not he or she comes into your life again or ever asks you for forgiveness. So level one forgiveness is about your heart posture. Level two is about transactional forgiveness. And and this whole section really is about bearing with one another. It's about persevering with one another as God's church. We put off the sins Paul's mentioning. We put on things like kindness and tenderness and forgiveness by being a part primarily of the same church family. In order to really do these things, to drill in, we've got to be committed to the same church family. The church of Ephesus, much like the early church, much like our brothers and sisters in church history and our brothers and sisters even in present day all throughout the world, they can't just up and quit a local church and drive down the road to the next one. Their local church is their family. It's their support group. It's the people they live with and may be martyred with. And this produces a willingness to persevere with one another and consequently learn the things the Apostle Paul was commending here. Western church culture is is different. Actually, recent statistics from Barna show that in America, two in five churchgoers report attending multiple churches. And church membership, especially among young people, is in decline. that, That shows us this. There's this consumeristic mentality surrounding being a part of a local church and being committed in membership to a local church. We go to this particular church for the music, this one for kids' ministry, this one for preaching, that one for nice facilities. But what if, assuming that this is a healthy local church, assuming Coastal is a healthy local church, we commit to being here. We commit to this local church instead of being a place where we put off bitterness and wrath anger, clamor, slander, and malice, 
and we instead put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness toward each other? What if our commitment here is how God sanctifies us? And what if our lack of commitment is keeping us from growing in Christ Jesus? Commitment to your local church, which you express through membership, is what God uses to sanctify you. A lack of commitment is keeping you from growing in Christ. That's how God's ordained it. So we walk with the mindfulness of the Holy Spirit. We walk with the mindfulness of the Father. And finally, with the mindfulness of the Son. We walk with a mindfulness of the Son. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And Christ, and we've seen, that this, we've seen what I'm about to say this morning clearly, But Christ sacrificially loved us. Christ, he endured immense suffering in order to love us well. And if Christ, the the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, truly man, truly God, was not spared from suffering, we won't be spared from suffering. Even if we will never and we won't experience the immense suffering that Christ suffered. But love, this teaches us something. Love requires suffering. Love requires suffering. Love costs something. That's the significance of Jesus telling his disciples to count the cost. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the cost of loving well. It's the losing of your life. Paul says the same thing as we'll see in Ephesians 5 to men about loving their wives in a Christ-centered way. Verse 25 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To love, biblically speaking, requires a continuous death, an ongoing death, putting to death those sins that that plague you, putting to death your selfish ambition, putting to death even what you perceive to be your rights or the things that you deserve. Biblical love requires this continuous gaze on Christ Jesus, who's not only our Savior, but he's our example, our model, and he modeled this perfectly. And he modeled everything that we see Paul commending in our text this morning. So in our walk with God, we're to be mindful of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to be mindful that our God is a trinity, and that mindfulness should lead us to forsake sin and put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, God, your Holy Spirit does live in us, and because of that, we can forsake sin, and we can walk in kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and love. We can persevere with one another, and, Lord, our failure to do that is a failure to grow in Christ's likeness and is disobedience to your word. So humble us, 
Help us to walk in the power of the Spirit. Help us to be strong in the strength of your might. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.